Dear Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. We have a special programme tonight, investigating the Jewish foundations of the Easter story and asking how it can be interpreted in ways that combat anti-Semitism in today's world. In a moment, we'll be joined by a panel of experts on Jewish-Christian relationships and biblical scholarship. But first, I was delighted to be joined by Professor Amy Jill Levine before Passover began. Amy Jill is Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace in Connecticut in the United States. She's the author of many books of scholarship and six children's books too, dealing with themes of interreligious understanding. AJ, thank you for joining us in preparation for our Good Friday show. I'm delighted to be able to be with you. Thank you. AJ, you're an observant Jew, but you teach New Testament. Well, the, the question of my observance is, is actually debatable. <laughs> I'm a member of an Orthodox synagogue. I love my synagogue. I love the worshipping. I love the study. I love the community. Uh, but I'm not Orthodox in practice. So that when I go to synagogue with my husband, we park about two blocks away to give the illusion that we walked, because otherwise we live too far out. <laughs> as you know, as well you know, uh, this coming weekend is Passover for Jews and Ramadan for Muslims and also Easter for Christians in the West. Can Easter be understood without knowledge of its Jewish context? Um, well, it has been. Uh, the question is, can it be understood well? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me the more one knows about that first century Jewish context, the more one can understand uh, what was happening in Jerusalem those days. One can understand better the Last Supper that Jesus had. One can understand the political situation. And ideally, for faithful Christians, one can be able to celebrate uh, not only Good Friday, but also Holy Saturday and Easter without having to have an anti-Jewish backdrop to it. So, AJ, to go back to the usefulness of studying the first century in, in doing this, um, Jesus was Jewish and his followers were Jewish. When did Christian as a title, become something separated from Judaism? And when did we end up with anti-Semitic sections embedded in the Gospels, given that it started with a, a Jewish hero among Jewish friends? <laughs> um, the question of Jesus' own embeddedness within Jewish life and culture is, is not in doubt. And the same point holds for, for uh, Paul of Tarsus or St. Paul. The New Testament only uses the word Christian three times in, in relatively late documents. But part of the problem here is that the people whom Paul was converting, the people to whom he wrote the letters to the Corinthians or the letters to the Thessalonians, they were never Jews and they were never expected to be Jews. Uh, but they are now, because of Paul's efforts and the efforts of a number of Paul's other Jewish friends, now followers of the God of Israel and the man Paul proclaimed to be the Jewish Messiah. So already we've got a little bit of a division, and the more the church became Gentile-oriented rather than Jewish-oriented, uh, the easier it was for it to lose its anchor within Jewish history, Jewish culture, and indeed the Jewish people. 
Um, we don't have a clear separation of what we would call Judaism and Christianity until around the 5th century. Uh, but we have very early on some writings from the early church uh, that could be looked at very easily as conveying anti-Jewish impressions. And this would make sense because the followers of Jesus, themselves Jews, had to figure out why the majority of Jews were not agreeing with them about their messianic proclamation. Hmm. Um, the majority of Jews, as far as we can tell, thought that when the messianic age came about, which means when the Messiah comes, there would be a general resurrection of the dead. Everybody comes back, not just one person. There would be a final judgment. Uh, there would be an ingathering of the exiles, so all the Jews in the diaspora would return to the land of Israel, which would now exist in peace. And there would be peace on earth. Well, that didn't happen. So the followers of Jesus had to figure out, why aren't the Jews joining? And some said, oh, they're being misled by their leaders, which is more or less the message that the Gospel of Matthew promotes. And some said, oh, well, God will arrange this all at the end of time after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's Paul, and it's a great idea. Um, and John says, you know, they were never fated to get it. They're really children of the devil. And many in the early church went with the dualistic reading that the Gospel of John issues because it was simply the easiest. But it's not the only option the church had or has. And do you think it was the, the version in, in put most explicitly in John that's led to this very prevalent idea that, that even I was taught when I was a child that was that the 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 Jews were responsible for the crucifixion of God. Yeah. Um, well, you start getting the idea that Jews not only killed Jesus, but Jesus as God, um, not in the New Testament, but after with uh, writers like Melito of Sartus. Um, it should not have gone that way. Um, anybody who grew up with the creeds, um, Jesus is not killed by the Jews. Jesus suffers and dies under Pontius Pilate. So the creeds actually got it correct, but it was easier to blame Jews, especially if there were local Jews, who represented uh, a rejection for the early Christian church of what they were saying. The Jews represented the no. Well, if they're children of Satan, as John chapter 8, verse 44 would suggest, we'll of course do away with them. But we've got hints of it in Matthew, where Matthew says, all the people, the Greek is pasholos, all the people cry out, his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Or even in Paul in 1 Thessalonians, who talks about the Eudaioi, um, who killed the Lord Jesus. The book of Acts, Peter's speech in Solomon's portico. Uh, Peter says, men Israelites, here in Nashville, this would be y'all Jews, um, <laughs> you killed the author of life. So blaming the Jewish community and exculpating the Romans comes in very, very early in the New Testament. And so how does it sound to Jewish ears when Christians claim that the resurrection is the fulfillment of Judaism or that Easter is the fulfillment of Judaism? Um, or they would say, Christians might say even more, like the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus is somehow the fulfillment of Judaism. Or the Sermon on the Mount is the fulfillment of Torah. Um, and, you know, certainly it's not my role to speak for all Jews, heaven forbid. Um, but I know for myself it seems a little bit odd, especially given that Paul talks about the importance of Israel, by which he means Israel according to the flesh or, or all Jews. 
Um, he talks about the moment when all Israel will be saved. I'm in Romans 11 here. Um, and if we take God seriously, God does not revoke divine promises. So as far as I can tell, there would be nothing antithetical for people who are Christians to say, Jews still have a role to play. And if the Christian concludes that at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, all the Jews worship Jesus, you know, I'm willing to wait. Professor Amy Jalivine, Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace in Connecticut in the United States. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much for inviting me. And to your listeners, happy Passover uh, and, and a blessed Easter as well. To you too. And now... To discuss the themes presented by Amy Jill Levine, it's my pleasure to be joined by Peter Admirant, Helen Bond and Peter Keenan. Dr Peter Admirant is a lecturer in the School of Theology, Philosophy and Music at Dublin City University and he's also the Christian co-chair of the Irish Council of Christians and Jews. Professor Helen Bond is Professor of Christian Origins and Head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. She's author of many books about the early years of Christianity, including The Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed. And Peter Keenan was, for many years, an advisor to the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales and served as secretary to its Committee for Catholic-Jewish Relations. His new book, The Death of Jesus the Jew, Midrash in the Shadow of the Holocaust, has just been published by Columba Press. You're all very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Keenan, what is Midrash? Well, Midrash is a Hebrew term which can be loosely translated to mean interpretation. But basically what happened was when the New Testament was written, uh, the scriptures, of course, for the authors of, of, of the New Testament uh, was what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And to make sense of the Jesus movement and the events particularly surrounding what we call Holy Week, they looked to the scriptures uh, to explain their interpretation after the collapse of uh, the Jewish state, uh, Cherka 70 and a bit later uh, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, to explain what was going on really uh, in their faith communities and and they used Midrash to that end. It's really using the past to throw light on the present. A.N. Wilson, uh, the British literary critic, once remarked that the New Testament is awash in Midrash and I think he's completely right. And there's been quite a lot of debate in recent years about whether it's appropriate for Christians in a well-intentioned effort to engage in um, anti-anti-Semitism, to celebrate cedars at this time of year, to celebrate the cedar meal. And that has been widely um, criticised for being inappropriate, for being culturally misappropriating of the very community it it was meant to be affirming. Are Christians okay to use Midrash, to use the word Midrash, this very Jewish of terms? Well, I think there's no difficulty with uh, Christians using the term Midrash. Uh, your comment about the cedar meal is is rather different. Uh, my own feeling is that 
there's no difficulty uh, for Christians in explaining the cedar meal and and even uh, going through the ritual in a very um, sensitive manner. But it must not be confused uh, with, um, for example, what Christians understand to be the Last Supper. And it certainly must not be seen as some kind of preparation for the Eucharist or anything like that. Uh, generally speaking, I think the whole approach to Christians in commas celebrating cedar needs to be uh, handled with extreme care and sensitivity. Thinking, uh, Helen, thinking more of how Christians need an appropriate understanding of Jewish traditions. Do you think that um, Christians can understand the Easter story at all without a good understanding of Jewish practices and beliefs? I think it certainly adds a huge dimension if people do understand the um, the, the Jewish background to all of this. Um, I mean, as as has already been said, Jesus himself is Jewish, his first followers are Jewish, and the whole story is taking place at Passover. And this is, you know, the the, the, the sort of cultural um, repercussions of Passover are all over this story. The idea of coming out of, of bondage and being set free and a new covenant with God. But I think I think Christians can't really understand what's going on in the Gospels, or, or I think they're in danger of misinterpreting it if they don't understand that um, that this is coming out of a, a Jewish perspective, that um, the people writing these Gospels are quite probably were, were Jews themselves. They were part of the part of the synagogue, they, but they were also believers in Jesus. And there's been several decades of hostility by the time that the, the Gospels are written between um, the, the emerging church and, and the, the Jewish synagogue. So I think the Gospels themselves reflect this hostility and, so, and, and sort of retroject it into the time of Jesus. So a lot of the, the hostility that Jesus has, particularly with, with Pharisees and, and ordinary Jews, the people that John's gospel are called the Jews, I think are, are sort of later retrojections to suggest that Jesus himself had the same difficulties with the Jews that um, the gospel writers do. And so I think we have to be very careful about that. And I think it's, it's good to understand that that's the background to these texts and that that, that um, hostility that's playing out in the background has led to a lot of what strikes us now as really quite anti-Jewish material. Do you think it amounts to anti-Semitism? The Gospel of Matthew, no, the Gospel I don't think of John. So. I, I mean, again, it all turns on uh, definitions, doesn't it? But if you if you think of anti-Semitism as being against ethnic Jews and and coming from outsiders, then I think I think that's very different to what we're getting in the Gospels. It's much more like I mean, people often compare it to a divorce or something, or you know, sibling rivalry. It's it's people who have been really close because the the followers of Jesus were obviously in the synagogue at one point, and then as they gradually accepted Gentiles, and once the temple fell and and Jews started to reflect on who is a Jew and who's not, it became very clear that that these followers of Jesus were no longer to be seen as part of the synagogue community. So, so they're very they have been very very close, but they're now um, you know it's it's that thing about your your 
ex-lover is now your, your worst enemy. And, and that's where this hostility comes from. So I don't think it's anything to do with ethnic Judaism. It's all to do with, um, with ideas about who, who is the heir to the promises of God in the Old Testament. The Jews say, of course, well, we are, we are, we, we always have been. Whereas now the Christians are, are wanting to say, no, actually, we are something different. And we are the ones who are the true Israel. We're the, the true heirs. So I don't think that's anti-Semitism, but it, it is definitely anti-Judaism. Peter Admirand, um thinking of this business of heirs and inheritance, it has often been said um, in the sad history of relationship between Christianity and Judaism, which has produced some awful, um, awful atrocities, uh, that Jesus fulfills the Jewish promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. And particularly around Easter time, there's a tendency to, to conflate the Easter event with, with that line of thinking. How do, we, how do we undercut that? What's in the text to help us undercut that? What's in the history of dialogue to help undo that? Right. So the one good thing is we've had, let's say, 75 years of positive dialogue on the whole. If we go back to Let's say the 1948 document, the Seelisberg Agreement, there's 10 points where Jews and Christians just two years, three years after the Shoah, um, get together and they start to say things like Jews and Christians worship the same God and, and these other positive statements that would have been unheard of in previous times. Then, of course, you jump forward to 1965 uh, with the Second Vatican Council and Nostra Aetate, which is, again, a watershed document for Catholics in particular to see goodness and truth in other faith traditions, particularly in Judaism, and combating some of these awful pernicious charges like the Jews killed Jesus and this type of, um, you know, just detrimental um, kind of accusations. But nevertheless, there's big claims throughout Christian history of Christians superseding Judaism. This is called supersessionism. Sometimes it's, it's lightly phrased as fulfillment theology. So, you sometimes get Christian theologians saying, no, I, I'm not talking supersessionism, I'm talking fulfillment. I still see that as soft supersessionism. Anything that seems to imply the Jewish covenant is no longer alive and vibrant with God, to me, is, is something we have to challenge as Christians. The Jewish covenant has not been revoked, as Paul says in, in Romans. Also, John Paul II echoes this in Minds in 1980. Pope Francis is now repeating it over and over this means that Christians in particular have to recognize that the Jewish way to God is, is vibrant, is alive, is ongoing, and is, I would argue, salvific. So in practice then, thinking of acts of worship, the, the prayers that were said in, in many churches in this country earlier this afternoon, the reproaches, these changed after Vatican II. Um, it, it toned down the... Um, Jews are responsible for the death of Christ, and it changed from praying for the conversion of the Jews to praying for their fulfillment of redemption. Do you think that goes far enough? No, I, I mean, you know, you can pray with others. So let's think of the 1986 day in Assisi, the World Day of Prayer, where, you know, John Paul II invited people from all faiths to pray together or to pray in their way, right? Praise equals, I, I would see it as. Um, so that's okay. Certainly, I have no problem with Muslims or Jews praying for me, but to phrase it in that way, it seems to imply that, again, the truth or the highest truth is on the Christian side, and these other faith positions are lacking in something. And I think 
Christian history teaches us that's a very dangerous position to hold, because often when we've taken that high road and thinking that we have all the answers, a lot of bad things happen, whether it's indigenous traditions that we've destroyed, whether it's the Shoah, pogroms, it's just not the way to go. So I think humility, respecting other faiths, that, that's the way forward. So certainly pray for others, others but, but not with this idea that our prayer is going to fulfill you because you're lacking while we have all the answers. Peter Keenan, um, staying on the theme of practice, of acts of worship, of or the liturgy, you've said that the Easter liturgies are a drama, but so often presented as and interpreted as historical fact. How would you change that? Well, can I first of all comment on what the previous speaker said, and I agree with him 100%. I think the key to this is that we need to get our heads around understanding the the relationship Judaism has with God and Christianity has with God, not in terms of one covenant, which seems to be the mainline Christian position, but in terms of two covenants. The liturgical thing will take care of itself. As intimated by Peter a moment ago, the problem is that there's a kind of an implicit, indeed an explicit arrogance in our current Good Friday liturgies, I think, where we still have this assumption that um, Judaism can only achieve its full fulfillment in the Christ. Now, that's a legitimate position for Christians to believe for Christianity, uh, but certainly that is not the position of Judaism. And if dialogue is to be genuine and purposeful, uh, we have to respect the other's position totally. Our Good Friday liturgy in particular needs a midrash. There must be an explanation properly given by the pastors who deliver these um, services that we are not dealing with history in our sense of the term, which the Catholic Church has accepted for a long time. It officially acknowledges, uh, for example, uh, that the Passion narratives are not eyewitness accounts of what happened uh, on what we call Good Friday, nor are they transcripts of history in our modern sense of that term. But the vast majority of Catholic priests, in my opinion, uh, throughout the English-speaking world, remain largely ignorant of the implications of that teaching. And certainly the vast, vast majority of people uh, earlier this afternoon attending Good Friday services in Catholic churches will leave those services thinking in some form or another they've been listening to history when in fact a lot of the time they've been listening to theological propaganda and we must move rapidly to change this dreadful situation in my view. Helen, if people were looking for Midrash, they might turn to one of your books and Peter Keenan (laughs) talks there of two covenants and one of the things that your books really bring out is the different character of the four Gospels, not, not just Mark's Gospel, which you've written so magnificently about. Do we get four different Jesuses, given the four different, very different characters of the Gospels? To some extent, we do. Yes, I think so. I mean, the different slants on on Jesus and Jesus's character. I mean, I would say that the Gospels are biographies rather than midrash, but they're biographies that they're ancient biographies, and they're very much working within the thought frames and vocabulary of um, of, of the scriptures. But they each sort of present a slightly different portrait. But because we we have them all together, and because we read them all, I suppose 
different bits of the gospel at different times and with the liturgy we read one gospel after another we tend to have a kind of a composite picture of them all so I think particularly when it comes to the passion narrative we tend to have a sort of a, a, a harmonious picture that that pulls from all of these um, and, and, and has this sort of composite picture of all of Jesus's various trials and the various words that he says on the cross. So, you know, he comes out with several words from the cross, not just the, the single words that he might have in each of the Gospels. So I think that actually sort of pushes against reading the Gospels as individual pieces of work. And so we tend to sort of lose that distinctiveness of each of the Gospels because we tend to read them all together. And in some ways, I think if we did read them in a more isolated way and, and had more of a sense of this is Matthew's Jesus, this is Luke's Jesus, then I think we might understand a little bit more about what the various evangelists are doing in their accounts and perhaps to be able to, to make more sense of you know, for example, the the extremely negative things that that we have in in Matthew, where where the people say his blood be on us and on our children. If you read that within the context of Matthew's gospel, you've got a better sense of understanding why it is that the evangelist puts those words in, in the mouth of the the crowd. But I think when it's just seen as part of a, a long sequence of events, um, you've got much less of a of a hope really. Peter Edmund, um we know and you've written um, wonderfully about the terrible consequences of not reading the Gospels in the, in the way that Helen has just described. Living for all of us, living after the Holocaust, how ought we celebrate Easter differently? How ought we do theology differently? So the most important thing I, is humility, right? For so long, you had Christian triumphalism, this idea that truth was only on our side, the light was on our side, the outsiders were darkness. That, that of course, can no longer be the case. So that means Easter should really be a time of humility, a time of introspection, a time also of celebrating the Jewishness of Jesus. And also, what does it mean for, for resurrection? What does it mean for crucifixion? Who are crucified today, right? And so, so that is the key issue. We think about the poor, those who are suffering from climate change, all of those issues, but then resurrection, hope, trying to make the world better, working with other faith traditions. And I think this is where the Catholics can think about the value of Lent, the value of Good Friday, the value of the resurrection. How do we partner with other groups and of all faiths? Dr. Peter Admirant, Professor Helen Bond and Peter Keenan, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we have time for, for this programme. To those who celebrate, I wish you a happy Easter, a good Passover, a good Ramadan and good night. The Leap of Faith was presented by Fisher-Warren Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Lee Mullen with research from Sinead Kennedy, the broadcast coordinator Daniel Keating and the programme was produced by Sheila O'Cara.